Romans, um, Romans chapter 8. So, if you're somewhat unfamiliar with the Bible, you have the Old Testament, New Testament, and the New Testament begins with the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, which revolve around the life and the ministry of Jesus, followed by the very important book of Acts, which records the ascension of Jesus, Jesus going up into heaven and pouring forth his spirit that was designed to empower the church to carry out its mission and message of Jesus to the world. Then we come to a very different book, and that is the book of Romans. And if you really want a dense book that is, that is very informative and basically touches on the basics of the Christian faith, that book is for you. Romans has a number of chapters to it, and we are in Romans chapter 8. And I want to draw your attention to verses uh, 12 through 17, and, and I'll explain in the introduction why we're looking at this passage together. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we may suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. And I want to draw your attention just to one verse that we're going to focus on this morning and unpack. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, that is with our human spirit, that we are children of God. The Spirit, that is the Spirit of God, testifies inwardly to us in our human spirits that, you know what, we, we are not orphans. And we are not slaves, as we are going to see, but we are sons and daughters of the king. More specifically, we are sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. And I want, I want that to sink into us this morning. That when, by the grace of God, you join yourself to Jesus, and you come to the end of yourself... You say, I can't really continue in the way that I'm living my life right now. And you commit your life to Jesus by faith. At that point, you transition from being apart from God or viewing God from a distance. And you enter into intimacy with God to the point where God becomes your father and you become his son or you become his daughter. And I want you to reflect on that because we live in a world where many people, most people, by the way, and I've oftentimes told you this as a pastor as I interact with people, it's amazing to me how very few really self-conscious atheists there are that I have met. Many of them believe in a God of some kind, but when you interact with them and you ask them, well, tell me something about this God, they're a little bit at a loss, but oftentimes they'll focus on one character attribute of God that we do find in the Bible, and that is this, what we call the sovereignty or the power of God. Somehow they know that God is out there, God is powerful, and that they are not God. But that is not the same 
as understanding that it is very possible by knowing Jesus that you enter into a personal relationship with God whereby you become his child and he becomes your father. Okay? And when you come to that point, that is a very, very life-transforming, it's a very beautiful thing. Okay? So, I just want to say this before we dive into Romans chapter 8. If you've been here over the past number of weeks, you know that we've been going through a very important series on mission, and we saw how God is a missionary God, how he calls us to participate in his saving and restorative mission in this world. For as Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, now I send you out into the world. What we're doing is we're changing course at this point, or as they say, we're switching gears. And now we're going to focus from our outward task and responsibility to something that is deeply inward. We're moving from our corporate responsibility to bear witness to the world of Jesus, who he is and what he's done. And now we're going to focus on something deeply personal, individual, warm, and experiential, okay? So bear that in mind. Now, let's set the course for that, Romans chapter 8. If you take a look at Romans chapter 8 as a whole, and by the way, again, Romans is a pretty dense book. So even, even for people who have been in the faith for a long time, they find sometimes the book of Romans difficult to navigate and understand, but that shouldn't keep you from reading it. Okay? And when you take a look particularly at Romans chapter 8, you find among other things, but this is a real emphasis of Romans chapter 8, you, you, you find the, and you begin to understand the very personal and very multifaceted ministry of the Holy Spirit. Someone once said of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Holy Trinity, that he is the kind of the shy person of the Holy Trinity because the design of the Spirit is not to point himself or point us or point Let's put it this way, to draw attention to himself. But the ministry of the Spirit is to draw attention to something outside of himself, and that is Jesus, always. So if you're part of a church, if you've ever been a part of the church, where it's all about the Holy Spirit, and almost nothing but the Holy Spirit, then that should be a dangerous sign to you. Because the intent of the Spirit is not to draw attention to himself, but to Jesus, number one. Number two, someone once said that, the, or referred to the Holy Spirit as the forgotten person of the Holy Trinity, because sometimes as Christians, we don't focus on the ministry and the person of the Spirit in the way that we should. Well, we get a corrective for that in Romans chapter 8. So in Romans chapter 8, we see how it is the Spirit of God that draws us to Jesus Christ. So there is no coming to grips with who you really are as a sinner in need of forgiveness. There is no possibility of generating faith and warmth toward God apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is absolutely instrumental. So it's the Holy Spirit who gives us the gift of faith. Is the Holy Spirit who draws us to Jesus Christ. It is the Holy Spirit who the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, indwells us, that is, he, he lives within Christians. It is the Holy Spirit who enables us to pray when sometimes we find it difficult to pray, knowing what to say and how to say it. And it is the Holy Spirit, according to Romans chapter 8, that bears witness or testifies to our human spirits that, that we are children of God. Now again, I want you to, to just reflect on that for a while. That it's the, it's, in the life of the Christian, it, there are times when the Spirit 
in a very intimate and personal and a very real way testifies that, that we are not slaves of God. Because many people live as if they're a slave of God. And I want to get to that in just a moment. We're not slaves of God, but that we are sons and daughters of God. And secondly, it is the Holy Spirit who reminds us that we are not orphans. But we are God's adopted children. Now you notice I use the word adopted. Adopted. Because you know what the Bible says? And this may be somewhat harsh for you to hear. But in and of ourselves, apart from Jesus, we are not the adopted children of God. Should I tell you a term that the Bible uses? For those who are not in Christ, it talks about being a child of wrath. You know, you read that in Ephesians chapter 2. It refers to us as a child of wrath. Who wants to live as a child of wrath? God's wrath. We want, to be, we want to be children of our Heavenly Father who loves on us as adopted children. How do you become an adopted children, a child of the Heavenly Father? Through Jesus. Right? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So it's a very important point. So in Jesus, that's the point of Romans chapter 8. In Jesus, we, 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 we transition out of being children of wrath to being children of God, adopted children of God. And the reason why I use that term adopted is because that's what we find in Romans 8. So take a look. If you have to look there above, take a look at verse 15. Better yet, if you have your Bible, take a look at verses 15 and 16. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of literally its sonship or adoption as sons by whom we cry, and this is a very personal term, Abba, Daddy, like a, li like a little boy or girl, two or three years old, Daddy, Daddy. Where, where the Spirit testifies to our spirits that we are children of God, whereby we cry, Abba, Daddy, Father. That's a very personal thing. Now you notice in, in verse 15, and also 16, that there is, a, there's, there's a very sharp contrast between being a son and being a slave. And when I, just listen carefully to this, when I use the word son, then that doesn't mean that those who are female should check out. So when the Bible uses the word son or sonship, it's really referring also to daughters as well. Sons, daughters, right, as opposed to being slaves. Now let me ask you this. Do you understand the difference between being a slave and a son? I suppose if you had to think about it, you could say some things that first come to mind about being a slave and a son. But it's very interesting, and I want to I kind of tease this out a little bit. It's very interesting how many people have, have a conception of themselves where they're either distant from God or they have a relationship with God, but it's not a, a sonship relationship, but it's like an indentured servant relationship. Let me tell you the difference between being a slave and a son. Uh, a slave is one who works for a master, who knows the rules of his master and the rules of the master's house, and he or she is an individual who understands that, that they have certain duties to perform 
And if they fail to perform those duties, they are in trouble with the master. That's a slave. So typically, there is little love between a slave and a master. There is little intimacy between a slave and a master. There is little joy between a slave and a master. What, what we find is that the kind of relationship that a slave has with his master is strictly a contractual relationship. Okay, that's a slave. But what about a son? A son does not have a contractual relationship with a master. A son has a living, loving relationship with a father. A son knows that the father loves him. The son knows that the father cares for him. The son knows that the father will provide for him. The son knows that even his father, if it's a really loving father, will at times correct him so that he may draw back into a better relationship with his father. And finally, a son is an individual who knows, or a daughter is an individual who knows that, you know what, no matter how they mess up, their father will never reject them. But the father will always love them and take them where they're at and bring them to where they need to be in terms of relationship with him. That's the difference. To, to quickly illustrate this, um, I may have shared this before, but I'm sure there's a, those of you who are here who haven't heard this. I want to quickly share a personal experience. When, when Joy and I were church planning in Missouri and our kids were much younger, and you parents here will be able to identify with this, there is um, one of our daughters, I can't remember exactly whom, but I think I know the one, and she, she was just a pill one day. And you know how it is when, when your kids are two, three, four, five years old, sometimes they, they just wake up on the wrong side of the bed. And she woke up on the wrong side of the bed and she was just a mess all day. And so that day ended and I think, I remember, I think it was Joy who, who put her to bed and before Joy and I went to bed, as I sometimes did, not always, sometimes I would, I would go into their rooms and I would see my daughter there. And I looked at her, and you ever notice that when your kill, kids are a pill, but when they, when they fall asleep, how they look like little angels? Yeah? You just look at them. And you would never known that she was a pill that day, but she was, and I remembered that. And when I looked at her, there was this, this flood of feeling where I just looked there and I, and I thought, I don't care if you were a pill. Because I'm your dad, and I, I will love you, and no one will ever take that away. Nothing you do can take that away. You will always be my child. You will always be my daughter. Now, maybe you can I, I identify with that as, as, as a parent, and you, 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 as parents, we are kids especially when they're younger, or even if they get into the teenage years and we're getting a little bit of rub, and I know we have a lot of younger parents here, and you will, it's not a question of if, you're going to go through that sometimes with your kids, and those of us who are middle-aged and older, we look back on those years and we can recall those times, right? And when you recall those times of great friction, 
The fact of the matter is, you never said to yourself, you know, the fact of the matter is, they just weren't a pill that day. They've been a pill for a, a, a week or maybe months or whatever. There's not a point where as a Christian parent you go, you know that they simply have crossed the line, and especially if they're young, you know what, I'm going to leave them at some social services thing or parachurch ministry. I'm going to put them there, and I'm going to drive off, and that's it. They have crossed the line. We don't do that. Why? Because we love our kids. We love our sons and we love our daughters. Now I want you to, th why do I take some time to, to say that? If, if, this is, if, this, if these are the feelings that we as parents, as mothers and fathers have for our children, why do we sometimes doubt that our Heavenly Father, who is more perfect and loving than we could ever be, consistently so, why do we think that somehow our Heavenly Father is going to say, eh, you cross the line, and I think I'm just going to draw back. God does not do that for those who are adopted children of his through Jesus Christ, right? And yet sometimes what happens is that we, we do feel that from, from our, our Heavenly Father. And we live as slaves sometimes and not as sons. And, you know, we look at ourselves and we say to ourselves, I know the rules and I know the duties that I am to perform, but sometimes the Father seems a million miles away. And sometimes we question his love. You know, um, there's, a, there's a story in, in the Bible that we need to know that directly relates to what I just said. And that's the story of the prodigal son. And the prodigal son was... The Bible doesn't say how old he was. He seems like he's maybe between 16 and 20, something like that. And he was living under the roof of his father's house. And he asked his father for an early disbursement of his inheritance so he could go out and party his life away. And so the father gave him that inheritance. Probably wasn't happy with it, but he gave him the inheritance anyway. The kid leaves the house. And the Bible says very specifically he went to a distant country to get away from God. Or his, in this case, his father, the father of the house, which represents God. Okay. And so he goes off into this far country, and sure enough, he, he gets some friends, and he parties all his money away, and he just lives this wasted life. And eventually, because over the months he's living this wasted life, he runs out of the money, and he finds himself in need of a job, so he starts working for a farmer, a pig farmer, and eventually he finds himself in a pigsty, hungry and alone and miserable. And you know what he says? He gets to the end of the road, and he says, he says to himself, I'm going to, I have sinned against heaven and I've sinned against my father. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually return to my father's house. And then the operative words are these. He says, I'm going to say to my father, I am not worthy to be called your son. I will, I will be your slave. I will be your servant. Why does he say that? Because the assumption in his heart would be, I messed up with my father, and now once I return to my father's house, I'm going to have to perform all these kinds of duties so I get back into his good graces. See, that's our natural reaction. That's how we function many times. So he travels back to the father's house, and he's a long ways off, but the father happens to be outside, and he sees his son coming. And as his son is coming down the road to his house, the next thing, the next image we receive is what? Is that the image we receive? Not according to the story. Although that may be the kind of response that we've had as parents with our kids. 
No, the father sees his son, and the father runs. Father, he doesn't walk to his son. He runs to his son, and he takes hold of him, and what he does is he embraces him. He kisses his son. He puts a ring on his finger. He puts a robe on his back, and then he basically says to the household, Let's, let's party. Let's have this party. Let's kill the fatted calf. That's the language of years ago. Let's kill the fatted calf. Why? Because my son, who I thought was dead, is alive. My son, who is lost, has been found. And so this is great joy with the father. Now, let me ask you this question. Why does the father respond to his son in that way? Because he's his dad. Because he's his father. And no matter what his son would have done, it would not have removed the love of the father for that son. And this is the way it is with our heavenly father. That's the way he treats us. He loves us and he loves us because of what Jesus has done for us. And, and you know what he wants us to do in terms of that father-son or father-daughter relationship? He desires that we not only live within the joy and the comfort and the assurance of that, but actually that something spring forth from our lips, which is what? We are to cry it out. We are not to mumble it. The word is cry in the text. We're to cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy. But sometimes that cry is rather muted or it is, it's missing altogether. Why is that? You know what I have found um, as a pastor, sometimes dealing with people who have been Christians a long time and who, who question, they don't put it in this way, but this is what they're doing. They're, they're questioning the love of their father and they're questioning whether they're even worthy one day to, as the language says of here, verse 17, the language of being heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That's talking about a, a person who will receive not just life in this life, but life in the life to come. How do I even know I'm going to be in heaven? I just look at me, look at me. And they struggle with assurance and they struggle with comfort. And they struggle with their relationship ultimately with their heavenly father. Why is that? And here's some things that I found out um, personally as a, as a pastor. Sometimes it's faulty theology. Where individuals who feel distant from the heavenly father, though they have been Christians for many years in their lives, they feel that distance because they really don't understand the sufficiency of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Because my friends, we have to understand that Jesus is not an 80% savior. Jesus is not a 90% savior. Jesus is not even a 99.5% savior. He's a 100% savior. And it is Jesus who takes us, sinners that we are, through faith in him. And he says, I have cleansed you. I've shed my blood for you. My, the righteous clothing that was on me, I place on you. On the basis of what I've done for you, my father declares you his child. Now, rejoice in that. Don't, don't do this. Oh, I don't know, I don't know. Rejoice in it. Rejoice in it. You're my child, says the Father, because of Jesus. So sometimes we feel distant from the Father, and we don't always feel that we're a son or daughter of the Father because of faulty theology. Sometimes it is because of certain sins that we've committed in our lives, whereby God doesn't disfellowship us at this point, says you've crossed the line, and now you're not mine anymore. But sometimes because of our sins, we distance ourselves from God. 
And sometimes it simply is the fact that, and, and this is what you find pastorally too, sometimes people are not necessarily dealing with faulty theology, but they're dealing with emotional and psychological struggles in their life. Maybe they're down, maybe they're depressed, maybe there's just a dark period in their life and God seems distant. And then they start identifying with the words of the psalmist who said, Lord, why are you so afar off? And why do you hide your face from me? Right, you ever identify with that? And it's during times like this that God doesn't allow us to wallow in our depression or our difficulties or whatever we're facing in our life. But what God does is he gives us a gift. What's that gift? It's the gift of his spirit who works in us and, and, and aligns himself with our human spirit that is sometimes down. And he lifts that spirit and he confirms to us and says to us, however you may feel, the objective reality is this, through Jesus, says the Father, you are mine. Now smile. Smile. Let me give you, uh, I'll be short with this. Can you put the, the text on from uh, Romans chapter 5? Take a look at it if you would. For we rejoice in our sufferings, know that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. What is hope? Hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is a confident expectation. That God is not done with us in the midst of our difficulties and suffering. And hope does not disappoint us. Why? Because our hope is rooted in this. The love of God that has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. You see again the, the important ministry of the Holy Spirit. So when we feel sometimes far from God, God gives us that gift of the Spirit. And through that Spirit, he pours his love within our hearts and assures us that, you know what? You are a loved child of God. Um, do you know that, that when you, I want to say this, I want to start drawing to a close, but when you take a look at church history, and sometimes when you look at persons in the Bible, you see that ministry of the Holy Spirit at play. Uh, sometimes for those who are already converted, and sometimes who are in the process of conversion. Let me give you a few examples of that. When you take um, a look at the Bible and you start learning the Bible, right, you learn that there's a, a book in the middle of the Bible called the Psalms, and there's 150 Psalms in all. And it's very interesting that when you read the Psalms, especially the beginning of the 150 Psalms, the psalmist, the author, not exclusively, but many times it's King and Poet David. And what's, what's interesting is that when you read the Psalms, do you ever notice how oftentimes the psalmist begins on kind of a dark or despairing note? Maybe his enemies are trying to kill him, or maybe he's, he's of poor health, right, and, and he thinks he's going to die, or maybe he has sinned against God. You think of David and his adultery with Bathsheba and all of that, and so it begins on a rather dark and despairing note, but do you ever notice how often in the Psalms that while it begins on a despairing note, it, it ends on a note of hope? Begins with despair, ends with hope. Why? Because the psalmist realizes, thanks to the Holy Spirit, that he's a child of God. Or think of some individuals who experience this warmth of the Spirit and the love of God poured forth in their hearts through the Spirit in the midst of their conversion. If you put up uh, this quote from 
Blaise Pascal, he's a French mathematician, converted. Notice the feelings that he experienced as a result of being given the Spirit of God and converting. He says, fire, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and not the God of the philosophers and scholars. There's certainty, certainty, feeling, joy, peace, like he's come to the end of himself and he's found new life. Or how about this from uh, John Wesley? who, if you know the story of John Wesley, an evangelist, um, he doesn't share much of our theology, but he was a Christian man. He influenced many individuals for Christ. When he was converted, he was converted simply by hearing the preface or the introduction to the book of Romans by a man named Martin Luther. And this is what he wrote. I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt that I did trust in Christ, in Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from sin and death. And then finally, there was the experience of John Bunyan, who wrote that famous book, Pilgrim's Progress, and he wrote this at the time of his conversion. I felt in my soul an inner conviction that my righteousness was in heaven. The splendor and shining of the Spirit in my soul also helped me to see clearly that my righteousness was all from the Son of God, who represents me before God's mercy seat. So what do these individuals have in common? They experienced the reassuring and convicting ministry or the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Have you ever had it where maybe it was in a, in a quiet moment or maybe it was in a dark moment or maybe it was during a sermon, or maybe it was in the context of worship, and you were singing a song. Maybe it was a psalm, maybe it was a historic hymn, maybe it was a, it was a contemporary song of some kind, and you experienced the Spirit witnessing to your spirit that you were a child of God. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying, oh, I heard a voice. I'm just saying there's a quiet impression and a confirmation that, you know what, the Lord loves you. Your father loves you. Maybe, maybe you're here this morning and, and you're hearing all this and you're kind of going, okay, you know, I kind of I get where you're going, but I've, I've never really experienced this myself. <laughs> you know, I never really experienced like, oh, I'm a child of God. You say, and so my question to you is, why, why do you suppose that is? Why is that? Well, it could very possibly be because you've never given your life to Jesus. Or maybe it could be that you've never witnessed that, that beautiful feeling of knowing that you're a child of God because there's a struggle with doubt that you have. You're wondering even if it's, even if it's true or maybe even seems like it's too good to be true or maybe too touchy-feely. But let me ask you this. Even, even if you feel that there is doubt that it's all true, don't you want it to be true? Wouldn't you like it to be true that, that you would know God is not as a God who is out there somewhere in space, but a God who is personal and with whom you can have the kind of relationship with him that he's no longer just God, but now he's your father? And wouldn't you want it to be true, to know that in the end, you're not just some human being walking on the face of this earth, but you are a son or you're a daughter of God and an heir now of eternal life. 
But isn't it also a beautiful thing, and I'll end with this. Isn't it a beautiful thing when you can know and when you do know that God is your Father, that Jesus is your Savior, and if I even may put it like this, that the Holy Spirit is your lover in the sense that he has loved you enough to combine with your spirit to display the love of the Father to you, that you're not a slave, that you're not an orphan, but you're a son and the daughter of your heavenly Father. My friends, there, there is no more beautiful truth and more beautiful experience than to know that in your heart of hearts. And so what I want to do is I want to pray, and I want to thank God that we do experience that. And if you are a person here who does not experience that, I'm going to pray for you too, that you may experience that one day. So let's draw together and let's pray, and then we're going to sing. Heavenly Father, it is indeed a blessing. And we confess that to you, that your grace is so powerful and so beautiful that you have changed our hearts and that you have drawn us to Jesus through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And even now, Lord, we thank you that you continue to confirm our relationship, not only with Jesus, but with you, O Father, through the ministry of that Spirit. Lord, we pray that you grant us fresh infusions of that experience in our lives so that it may comfort us and so that we may encourage others with that same kind of comfort. And Father, we pray that if we are here this morning and we are simply devoid of that kind of relationship now, possibly because we don't know Jesus, possibly because we have not given our lives to Jesus. Father, we pray that what you have done for so many of us here, you would do in our lives as well, that we may come to know Jesus and that we may come to know you as our heavenly Father and the one who is an object, a recipient of your love now and indeed all the way through eternity. God grant that we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing in response now hymn uh, 7.